Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Matthew chapter 22 verse 9. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's nice not seeing you through a gauzy blur. I realize that since we're the masks, masks were universal, the, the screen was redundant now. Um, so I want you to imagine that you um, are walking into Kroger or Publix, if you're fancy. <laughs> and at the checkout line, you see one of your neighbors uh, from your neighborhood, a neighbor that you really like and that you've wanted to get to know more. And you see him stacking up steaks and fresh lobster from the seafood section and a, a whole case of really fancy wine. And you wave at him and he says, hey, actually, we're having a big feast with social distancing uh, outside uh, at my house this evening. Um, are you free? Can you come? If you, assuming that you um, don't have other plans, the response would be, yeah, sounds great. That's sort of like the invitation that Jesus compares the gospel to in the reading we just heard this morning. Actually, it's more than that. It's a wedding feast, which then in the first century as now was a time you pull out all the stops to be able to take time off and celebrate the occasion with family and friends. So the question I ask is, when you think about prospectively um, telling someone about the gospel, and here I don't have um, first in my mind like a cold street evangelism encounter, I mean like a friend or a family member or an acquaintance. When you think about telling them the gospel, do you think about it like extending an invitation to a party? Because that's what Jesus likens it to in today's parable. I think that this uh, picture should, should color our understanding of what's happening in evangelism, that really it's the offering of a joyful thing likened to a feast. I know in my head sometimes I think, Maybe this is part of my upbringing or just a different like, you know, sermons on evangelism I've heard in the past or whatnot, but there's this sort of strange psychological pressure because the stakes are so high that it's like, oh, I gotta get this right and life and death hang in the balance, and, and they do. And I, but I think the way we usually color it, it, it doesn't have that sort of joyful quality of, did you know there's this great feast you can be a part of? I think we should recast to ourselves that um, it's a really sweet thing that you offer when you tell someone about Jesus, right? to be reconciled to the Creator God, to have the joy of knowing that you're not guilty of the thing that you are or would have been actually guilty of, to receive the many gifts that He gives us through His Word, through prayer, through fellowship, through the sacrament. I think it's a, an additionally meaningful detail of the parable that it's the wedding of the king's son, which is, you know your scriptures, I'm sure Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 kind of come to mind like, well, who's the, the king's son? Who's he getting married to? The bride, right? The church. This parable kind of has multiple layers woven together into how it maps onto reality. We're both bride and guests to the wedding feast that Jesus is offering as bridegroom to protect and provide for his bride the way any good husband does his wife. So all that to say, um, think of the mission of the church, our mission, your mission, of bringing the gospel to other people as really a, the chance to extend a joyful invitation to the great feast of knowing God. And when cast like that, it raises the question, well, who turns down an invitation to a feast? I have a few friends who struggle with 
acute social anxiety. So that's one category of people. But the Bible actually gives us the moral answer here in verse 5. The parable says that actually some people did turn down the invitation, which in the ancient world would have actually been their second invitation already, saying the feast is now ready. And they didn't go because it says they went off one to his farm, another to his business. The teaching of this parable, I believe, is that Jesus is saying you can be so wrapped up in the things of this world, whether it's your work, whether it's politics, whether it's just your material stuff or money and the sort of comforts to the flesh that those things are so often um, acquired for, that they're simply no longer interested in such a thing as a feast. If you become so engrossed in what can be seen and, and counted, you can lose the interest in things that for now are, remain unseen. Tragically, we know that there have been many folks over the last 2,000 years who have rejected this invitation to come to the feast. So what does the king do about this? Well, he says in verse 7 that he orders their destruction. But he also, out of his love and his joy in the feast for his son, he wants the empty seats at the table to be filled. So he continues, and I think sort of extrapolating the parable, to urge the church to her mission of invitation to then go out further than you would ordinarily go, to extend the invitation to folks that you might not expect. In Jesus' time, when he says the main roads, that's like the undesirable place, the place you don't want to go, right? where the folks who weren't really welcome in the city would, were forced socially to hang out, the poor and the less desirable folks. So trying to map onto today's terms to kind of paraphrase in the 21st century, Jesus is saying, go to the gas stations, to the truck stops, to that run-down trailer park just outside the city's, city limits that won't get zoned in, to the folks who walk on the railways or who hang around downtown by the fountain all day. It's part of the paradox of the gospel that these are the people that the king wants to come to his feast, even though they're hardly royal guests. That's how God would have it. Um, and I think partly because he knows that it's the poor who are more inclined to say yes to the invitation to a spiritual feast because they have less of the things of this world to be overcommitted to in the first place. In fact, the way the parable continues, um, it's even clear that some who came into the church um, were scoundrels. It's not just sort of the upright, well-organized poor. It's also the wicked and the criminal poor. It says the bad and the good filled the wedding hall. But then the, the parable goes on, right, that if the soul through its own stubbornness resists the transformation of the spirit, well, then the bad will be kicked out again on judgment day. I think that's the meaning of the, wedding, the absence of the wedding garment. Um, but especially when we read uh, this parable in Matthew 22 next to Luke chapter 14, where Jesus tells a very, very similar parable, he makes very explicit that the focus of those in the main roads is the actual poor. In Luke 14 it says, go and invite the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame to come to the feast. So it's clear, I believe, from the Gospels that God especially longs for the materially poor to come into his kingdom. Even the criminal poor with the hopes of sanctification. Um, it, it sort of grates against my sense of um, fairness, and maybe it's, a, I don't know, the democratic spirit or something that God would have favorites. 
But we know, of course, he came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and that's at work in this parable too. But he also came, come, invites the poor. Um, sort of, they are his, I don't want to say favorites isn't quite the right word, but I think the reason that he has such a heart for them is they expose to all of the body of the church what's our true state, that before God we're all impoverished, but if we're wealthy, we might forget that we actually are impoverished, spiritually, and need God. And he concludes with those words of warning, Many are called, but few are chosen. Um, if those words sort of have a, uh, a nervous sound to them, like, well, I've been called, but am I chosen? Think of those comforting words of St. Peter, who heard this parable when he says in his letter, um, be sure to make your calling and election sure. Right? That's, we, you, you are among the chosen if you continue in faithfully following Jesus and believing his gospel. So that's an unpacking of the parable, the meaning of the parable, I believe, for today. I want to offer just, I I shouldn't say just, I want to offer three uh, concrete exhortations uh, from the parable. The first is that um, I encourage you not to be so tied up in the things of the world that you neglect your own invitation to the feast. It's something that I've witnessed in Christian lives, all this talk about, oh, there's this great feast in knowing God and then failing to actually eat the feast yourself, right? Failure to actually enjoy the riches of knowing God as he makes himself known in prayer, in word, in fellowship, and in sacrament. Don't neglect your own invitation. The second is um, just to think concretely about a non-Christian in your life, or maybe someone who once professed Christ but has functionally turned their back on on Jesus. Um, Think of that person, try and bring that person to mind right now. And I, I, I used to work in the theater and you know when you have a light you can put a gel in front of it and it changes the color that's cast over the person. In your mind is the sort of that person is uh, colored. Instead of thinking of them in some other terms, think of them as just missing out. That they're missing out on, on riches, on a feast. And that it might be your opportunity to call them back to the feast. And one of the ways I suggest that that can work sort of um, readily in, in live life is to use the Kroger analogy again. Um, if you get caught, as it were, in the checkout line with lots of food for a feast um, by your non-Christian friend, that's a great opportunity to invite them. So unpacking from the metaphor, if you've been nourished by a Christian book, by a YouTube video that you saw, by a uh, uh, a, a scripture that you were just reading that this morning, and sort of you've just come from the feast, and someone asked what you're doing. There's no need to be shy, even if they're a total, total, if they're a total non-Christian, actively rejected Christianity, to say, actually, I was reading in this, this, uh, this prophet that wrote 2,500 years ago, and it was just so encouraging to picture this vision, Isaiah 25, of every tear being wiped away, and I was so comforted by that. Right? Just point to what you're being nourished on. And that's a very gentle way of inviting someone to reconsider their own invitation to the feast. The worst they can do is just not read it. The third and and final thing is, um, uh, it's uh, no secret that there are a lot of empty seats at, at this feast here at the Good Shepherd, that heartbreakingly some folks have left the congregation. 
And this passage in Matthew chapter 22 is something that for the last three months, actually, God has constantly be, has brought back several times to mind. And I've really received it from him as sort of a comforting word of guidance, which I just want to share with you is on my heart, that as there are empty seats for this feast, concretely the, the Eucharist as we celebrate it in the midst of the Good Shepherd, this is a chance to um, cooperate with God's especial love for the poor. That as we think about the years to come uh, here at Good Shepherd, that there's a, f- a sort of fresh opportunity, as it were, to invite into the feast those folks who are, are not desirable at other churches. And there's many metrics by which that could be judged. The parable says, the folks who linger in the main roads. And so I've been praying for the last couple of months, Lord, take us into the main roads. Me, you, the people of the Good Shepherd, the, the folks who we might not think to extend an invitation to come to church, to bring them to church. And I'm hoping, my prayer, and I believe God's given me sort of a vision for it, is that through our, the witness of our lives and through our invitation to folks to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, um, the Good Shepherd would be, the empty seats would be filled with, with the poor. It would be a great sign of God's presence among us if that were the case, and I think a great blessing uh, to all of us. Amen.